Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, UN investigator finds continued inhumane treatment at Guantanamo Bay detention center. Hungary's foreign minister says China decoupling will be an act of suicide for Europe. We will also take a look at a new report regarding China's unicorn companies, and the White House is embracing Bidenomics this term as the U.S. president is seeking to win over skeptical voters. To listen to this episode again, or to catch up on our previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World Today." Our top story: A United Nations investigator has reported that prisoners face ongoing cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment at the detention center of the U.S. Navy station in Guantanamo Bay. Fiel Niala Nialaing was the first UN expert to be able to pay an official visit to the detention facility. Her extensive report has found that near constant surveillance, forced cell extractions, and undue use of restraints are still present in the facility. The report also says that many detainees who were tortured have not received independent, holistic, or inadequate or adequate rather rehabilitation. Thirty people today remain detained at Guantanamo. And 19 of them have never been charged with a crime. Joining us now on the line is Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University. Thank you very much for joining us. So this、uh, particular UN expert is actually a professor at the University of Minnesota, as well as the law school with the Queen's University of Belfast. She acknowledged that conditions at The detention center in Guantanamo have improved in recent years, but in the meantime, grave concerns remain. What is your thought about this? Yeah, I followed the、uh, Guantanamo since the、uh, the nine eleven attacks. Look,、uh, I thought setting up Guantanamo now it's a piece of territory taken by the United States and the Spanish in eighteen ninety eight. I mean, already that's. Something that was taken from somebody else. I thought it was a bad idea then. I think it's a bad idea now.、Uh, my problem is, is that、um, uh, these people—I don't care what people said they did. They may have done certain things and、uh, terrible things, but they've been, been deprived of their liberty and been deprived of、uh, due justice,、uh, uh, due justice or、uh, natural justice. And、uh, I, I don't care if they're in a five. If it has all the qualities of a five-star hotel, they have been deprived of their liberty for no other reason than the arbitrary will of the last four American presidents. That、um, that Guantanamo, as as a prison, began with George W. Bush. It ran straight through、uh, Barack Obama, who said he thought it was a bad idea, but didn't do anything about it. And then I went on to.、Uh, President Trump, who said he was going to put more bad people in there, and that's what I expect from President Trump. And the new guy here, Biden, he's not doing anything about it. So we got Democrats and Republicans.、Uh, we have four administrations that have literally turned their back on on these people, and、uh, their report is accurate. 
it's accurate. These people have been deprived of their liberty. Some of them, I'm sure, were tortured, and they got the lights on and everything else. But we, we have an expression here in Australia. I imagine you you might even be familiar with it, too. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, justice delayed is justice denied. How, how could these people ever get a, a fair trial? Now, I do understand that part of the problem is getting a third country to take them. The yeah. U.S. Congress has laws that uh, that anyone accused of terrorism, like these people, should not be on should not be housed on American soil. That's why they're ninety miles offshore. Mm. And so, uh, uh, it, it's hard to get a, a third country to take them. And even when they get to a third country, you know, they probably just get dumped there. You know, they're not offered. Uh, uh, work or education for their kids if they could ever find their kids again and the rest of it i, I think it's uh, i think it's not only inhumane i think it's barbaric barbaric that, that we maintain mm. go ahead okay okay so professor i mean this is something that you have already talked about uh when you were addressing my previous question but you know Everybody knows that it's been more than two years after Biden administration officials said that they aim to close this particular detention facility. But the reality is that although the administration has transferred several detainees over the past few years or so, the facility remains in operation today. And like you suggested, President Obama uh, the, the former President Obama, when he was governing at the White House, he said, um, uh, quote unquote, it was the, the, uh, the prison was a stain on American broader record, arguing it should be closed. And then Donald Trump changed everything, et cetera, et cetera. So with all these um, past happenings, with all these past occurrences in mind, Professor, do you think uh, this uh, particular facility is ever going to be closed? And to what extent do you think this particular issue, whether to close it or not, is related to which political party a particular you know, American president is from? Well, Guantanamo in and of itself is uh, an American military base in Cuba, seated by a... Um, a, a peace treaty after 1898. So while Guantanamo will remain in American military hands, the prison could come and go. That prison can be shut down, well, Monday morning if they wanted to. But they do not have the, well, they have the ability to do so. They don't have the political will. Now, some of the Democrats have argued that, uh, you know, it's time to close it down, but they don't want to uh, a fight with anybody you know i want to be they don't want to be considered soft on on terrorism and, and the like and you know some of these people they're probably just plain innocent some of them may be as guilty as it comes but you still need a day in court you need a you need, you need a trial of some kind and um so uh, i i don't think there's any will in washington over the last four administrations to do anything about this and as the uh, the as, as the lady says in her report, no matter, you know, whether conditions improve or not, mm -hmm. uh, the thing is, is there's no likelihood that anybody, this prison is going to close or these people are going to be um, allowed to go. Okay. So you would argue, despite this kind of um, reports conducted by UN experts, uh, this kind of uh, reports will not be translated into political will in Washington, D.C.? Well, some people, some mm -hmm. people may may try to use 
the report to, to get some action here. Uh, some people might do that, and um, that, that, that's that's fair enough. But um, I think the uh, uh, most American politicians would stay away from this one as as too hard basket. I mean, they mm-hmm. don't want to they don't want to get involved in this. Can you imagine? Yeah. If there were Americans detained in a Chinese Guantanamo or a Russian Guantanamo, or there were Chinese in an American Guantanamo base, this would be unacceptable among the superpowers. But when a, a great power is dealing with lesser powers, you know what? These are all Arabs. This is real simple. You know, these are not complicated things. These are Arabs who were swept up in the um, uh, the. Uh, the 9-11 fervor after the attacks, and they're all considered, you know, major players in this attack on the World Trade Center. None of that's proved, you know. That's just sort of an explanation for doing nothing about it. But, you know, this wouldn't happen among equal powers. This only happens when you you deal with unequal powers. And the the Arab countries that actually own these people, they're not making a fuss about it. Because they don't want to say they don't want they, they may know there's something wrong with them, but they don't want to receive them again. So, you know, the, the Arab nations don't want them back and the Americans don't know what to do with them. So they keep the prison running. Mm-hmm. And you could imagine that prison costs millions and millions of dollars to run with guards and catering and all the rest of it. I mean, uh, prisons are very expensive in America. Okay, so we understand this particular U.N. expert has also met with those uh, repatriated and resettled detainees, somebody who were once kept in there but uh, removed later on. And basically, this expert, uh, her report is saying that these people lacked basic rights and services like legal identity, health care, education, housing, family reunification, as well as the freedom of movement. So why do you think... Uh, or what do you think could be um, behind this lack of basic rights and services? Well, they're looking for any Arab nation that will take them on or non-Arab nation. Mm-hmm. And a few of the nations that have been uh, uh, kind of forced to take them on have nothing for them at the other end. I mean, there's no, there's no welcome camp or anything for these people. They're literally left on the docker at the airport. And so and a number of these countries where they've been repatriated are probably having their own economic and political difficulties, if not uh, uh, civil war out in the streets. So the countries that have received them are not in a position to do anything about it. And it's not like the American uh, program where they uh, they put a, uh, someone in witness protection and pay the bills for a lifetime. It's not like that at all. All they do is buy them, get them an airplane ticket, and they dump them somewhere on another nation that may promise more or less, but does nothing at the end of it. So these people, are, they're literally doomed. You know, wherever, whether they're, I, some of them are probably better off in Guantanamo, at least they're going to get three meals a day and maybe some medical coverage. But when they go to these other countries, they have nothing. So they're, they're literally uh, um, hung out to dry. And this is unfair because they were captured by uh, Americans or American allies in the first place, and they sent to this place. Now, look, you can jump up and down around the world about the rules-based system. But when you have a prison on display where you have people who have been denied every uh, legal rule possible, then you have to ask yourself, you know, there is this sort of contradiction 
in America, in Washington, talking about the rule of law, while at the same time turning their back on the rule of law when it comes to these lesser people. Mm. Now, another thing on the horizon is that this UN expert has also met with and talked with the victims and some of the survivors of the September 11. Uh, terror attacks back in 2001. Now, in this regard, her report we're talking about here says while the legislative, social, symbolic, and financial action taken to support these people should be commended, more needs to be done to fill a very significant gap in realizing their rights to reparation, including comprehensive legislative. Provision to ensure the long-term security and reliability of compensation and medical entitlements. So, would you agree that in America, what has been done to support the victims and survivors is not enough? No, it's not enough, and、uh, it could never be enough because, in many ways, you can never replace what they've lost. They've lost loved ones. They've lost、uh, opportunities. They've lost education and all the rest of it. There was a number of legis- attempts to address these problems in terms of legislation, some economic、uh, assistance, social assistance, etc. And I'm sure it all falls short, you know. And particularly the firefighters, the first responders that went in there, and you know, half of them died of asbestos in their lungs. Uh, and and you know what, what do you what do you do? What do you give a family a、uh, x amount of money? They've lost a father, a brother, an uncle. You know the whole deal. So you know the, the family sort of crumples under this enormous pressure. And so、um, while Americans like to、um, uh, like to think that they can、uh, make some kinds of reparations, it, it's never enough. I mean, you know, you can't give them. Someone enough money for someone who's lost their life and involved with asbestos up to their their eyeballs.、Uh, on, on on the other hand, you know you got to show some、uh, some decency towards the people you're accusing of this.、Mm. And、um, and and you know the 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 report is absolutely accurate. Yeah. She says there there have been a number of improvements and there have been a number of efforts, but still more has to be done. Yeah, I mean I I doubt. Uh, Americans can be bothered with this right now. It's just one of those things that's not top of the mind.、Mm-hmm. It's in the back of the mind, and the war on terror, while it goes on, most Americans have given up on the war on terror in, in the Middle East. You know, they've turned their back on Afghanistan and in Iraq. There might be a war one day with Iran. They've turned their back on on Yemen, and they have trouble with the the, the kingdom and all the rest of them. I mean, America's turned its back on the Middle East. Yeah, and so therefore, there's there's no pressure. There's no pressure to solve this problem. This is an Arab American problem, and without the Arab input, Americans don't have to act, and therefore they don't act. Thank you very much. That was Professor Joseph Syracuse. Thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to World Today. Stay tuned. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Hungary's foreign minister has warned that any move to decouple or even de-risk from China will be an act of suicide for Europe. Peter Siado made this piece of remark at the ongoing Summer Davos Forum in the city of Tianjin. Siado said Hungary does not view China as a threat or a risk, adding other countries can take a lot of benefits out of China if they cooperate with China. 
European leaders have struggled to formulate a unified China strategy. Some countries echo American calls for a complete、uh, disassociation with Beijing, but others have preferred a softer approach. So, joining us now on the line is Professor Wang Yiwei, director of the European Studies Center with Renmin University of China. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. So, do you agree that curtailing ties with China, be it in the name of decouple or de-risk, will essentially kill the European economy? Yes.、Uh, firstly, decouple or de-risk、uh, is the same thing. Uh, originally, it's an American saying by the sales to Europe. I even said、uh, earlier by the von der Leyen,、uh, the president of the European Commission.、Uh, but it's the means, it's a、uh, risk is from China. So、uh, they change the term, but it's the meaning is、uh, similar. So decouple actually is a de-channelized、uh, globalization. So they want to build、uh, without China、uh, a new globalization, which American will be dominate. Okay, so in the case of Hungary,、uh, we understand China is the country's largest trading partner outside of the European Union bloc, and so far this year, China has been、uh, the number one source of foreign investments for this country. So, with、uh, these、uh, facts in mind, I guess the remarks by、uh, by the Hungarian foreign minister here. Is probably understandable and even not surprising, I guess. But some people in Europe might argue that Hungary cannot represent the whole of Europe. Professor Wang, what what is your view on this, or what do you have to say about this? Okay, it's not just the Hungary. Actually, it's like the Borrelli,、uh, the CEAS,、uh, the chief、uh, diplomat of the European Union, who also argued that the de-risk, the the created more risk. Uh, a, a even similar thing about the suicide of the European economy when the energy、uh, decouple with Russia now uh, uh, decoupled uh, from China is、uh, actually suicide for the Europeans. So because the Europeans' uh, prosperity is rely on the cheap energy from Russia and the cheap products from China. So actually, many、uh, countries, many leaders、uh, share the similar views. But Hungary very brave to say clearly and directly and openly. So that's the case. Okay. Now, in particular, one field, you know, Hungary seems to be playing a pretty critical role in terms of the Europeans' car manufacturing industry. German car makers, those giants like Mercedes-Benz, BMW, and Volkswagen, all have existing manufacturing facilities in this country. And interestingly, la- last year. A Chinese electric vehicle battery maker announced a 7.6 billion U.S. dollars、uh, to to build a new factory in Hungary. Now, according to this Hungarian foreign minister we are talking about here, whenever the current German foreign minister, who we know is not a very friendly lady to Beijing right now,、uh, talks about whenever this lady talks about decoupling. Then the CEOs of those German car makers you, would usually call Hungary's foreign minister to convince、um, their Chinese suppliers to come to Hungary. What can you tell from this? What kind of trends can you tell from this, Professor Wang? 
Oh, yes, I'm actually in uh, Tianjin, Davos. Uh, we met uh, the Hungarian foreign minister. And uh, oh. also I uh, listened to Premier Li Qiang's uh, speech. Uh, so very clearly, uh, three points. First, risk is normal. Uh, it's natural for globalization. Uh, de-risk is de-globalization. Uh, second, you should views of the risk from dialectic uh, approach. The risk and opportunities always linked together. Uh, so, uh, thirdly, let the market, let the entrepreneurs make the decision what's the risk, how to deal with the risk, not the politicians in the name of the China uh, phobia uh, to enforce the uh, businessmen to decouple or de-risk uh, from China. So that's uh, uh, changed the logic. So against the market principle. Mm, so I guess the geopolitical talk or rhetoric on the part of the uh, politicians is not really uh, consistent with the economic or business um, community's reality on the ground, I guess. So in addition to the cordial relations with China, we, we understand actually Hungary has also taken a pretty different position regarding the war in Ukraine, say compared to those mainstream uh, attitudes within the European Union or within NATO. So, Professor Wan, what do you make of this very this this perceived strategic autonomy on the part of Budapest? Do you think economic reasons are the only factors behind this um, uh, autonomy? Well, it's not just uh, economic. Uh, uh, that Hungary attract many Chinese investment, the build the rail, you know, connect the Budapest and uh, Belgrade. So, of course, it's very crucial for to build the mutual connectivities in this region. But the most important, I think, is Hungary represents that the European countries want to have their own path of the modernization, not that too, too much, you know, uh, uh, follow the American approach or integrated by the Brussels. So, you know, Brussels sent the order then what to do and what not to do. So they are, uh, want to seek a, a strategic autonomy and the nation state also need more independence from Brussels. That's the phenomenon. Hmm. So, frank, frankly speaking, do you think European leaders will ever formulate a unified China strategy? Well, European Union uh, always says we should speak one voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, 27 countries, if they speak one voice, the voice should be very weak. So if they have the uh, unified of the China uh, strategy, that strategy is a compromise among the 27 uh, member states. It's also quite weak. So that's the, uh, actually is, uh, contradicted. If we, you need efficiency to deal with China, you, you need the big powers to take a leading role. But if you need the democracy, uh, uh, if you need the coherence and, uh, uh, to reach the consensus, it takes time. Hmm. So, by the way, Professor Wan, in your understanding, how should Beijing you know, approach uh, European countries at the moment? Because if you know, somehow Beijing ends up only approaching or developing very, very uh, close relationship with countries like Hungary or other Southern European countries like uh, Portugal or Spain or Greece, then some European politicians might accuse Beijing of, you know, taking advantage of the so-called vulnerable point in the European Union. What is your view? Well, very clearly, three points. First, European integration is in a different speed, in a different areas. Uh, some areas like trade, as exclusive power for Brussels. We need to deal with Brussels in this regard. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, some uh, powers, they're shared by the member states. But uh, some uh, powers, actually, they are owned by the member states, not Brussels. So that's reality. Okay, it's not a single country. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, the comparative advantage of the uh, different member states in the different regions, they are, the gap is huge now. Like the east and the west, the north and the south, and the new members and the old members of the European Union. This yeah. is also the reality. So that's the reason we have a CDE China cooperation uh, to address these differences, to bridge the gap. Thirdly, China always respects uh, the uh, European Union's standard. We said, we highlighted that European Union should be the uh, major player and, uh, for the multipolar world, and uh, it's also we share the consensus on uh, uh, multilateralism. But we also need to deal with the member states uh, uh, bilaterally. So bilateral and uh, multilateral co- coordinate. Hmm. So really, we sincerely hope that China and Europe can rise above differences and better contribute to world prosperity. But that's Professor Wang Yiwei from Renmin University of China. We'll be back after a short break. From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance, and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. A Britain-based scholar says China has taken the lead in shaping global narratives regarding entrepreneurship and technological development. Associate Professor Paulo Savagat from the SAT Business School with the University of Oxford made these remarks on the sidelines of the ongoing Summer Davos Forum in Tianjin. Savagat cited advancements in circular economy practices as good examples of China's innovative capacity, noting they provide valuable insights into reducing material footprints for companies and everyday consumption. 
And during an interview with my colleague Xu Yawen, Professor Savagat also expressed his optimistic views for China's potential impact on global economic recovery, especially in terms of a post-pandemic world. Let's take a listen. You will be attending one of the sub forums. Could you share with us some of the key talking points or a key message that you will share during the summit? Sure, I'm very interested in how small organizations that I call scrappy、uh, address complex problems. They don't have lots of resources, financial resources, for example, but they still find very ingenious ways of addressing. Problems that range from poverty, inequality, access to medicines, for example,、uh, and I studied them over the past seven years、uh, to try to understand how they approach problems and how do they how they problem solve the different ways that they、uh, understand the situation and approach problems in very unconventional and creative ways.、Mm-hmm. So, just to give an example. Uh, an organization that I studied, a very small organization that worked in Zambia,、uh, they realized that they don't find life-saving medicines in remote regions in Africa, including for diarrhea treatment, that is one of the biggest killers of children under the age of five.、Mm-hmm. So,、uh, most large-scale organizations, if you think of the World Bank or many World Health Organization, Gates Foundation. These organizations are trying to look at this complex problem and understand the bottlenecks preventing this problem from being fully solved.、Mm-hmm. So, these bottlenecks include, for example, very poor infrastructure or poor funding.、Uh, but this small organization found an ingenious way to work around these bottlenecks. Imagine if you're a small organization, you can't invest in improving infrastructure, building roads, for example. That's too costly. So the workaround they identified was to piggyback on Coca-Cola's distribution channel, because you can find Coca-Cola everywhere, even in the remotest places on Earth. So why can't we take a free ride with these Coca-Cola bottles, so that medicines that can save thousands of lives? Can be made available in these regions as well.、Yeah. That's a very interesting workaround and illustrates the essence of the work that I've done with these organizations.、Mm-hmm. Uh, I published a book called "The Four Workarounds:、uh, Strategies from the World's Scrappiest Organizations to, for Tackling Complex Problems." And this book was published already in the U.S. and in the U.K. And it will be translated in、uh, to Chinese as well. A publisher、uh, got the the rights to publish here because they recognized that there's a momentum here to think of these unconventional problem-solving methods we all face in our lives,、mm-hmm. be them like these everyday problems that we face、mm-hmm. uh, in our daily lives,、yeah. or some of the world's toughest challenges. These kinds of unconventional problem-solving methods、mm-hmm. deliver. They're effective、mm-hmm. and they're resourceful. With the world economy facing some significant challenges, such as、uh, inflation or、uh, supply chain security, as well as a geopolitical imbalance, how can the entrepreneurial spirit provide new impetus for economic growth in the global economy? What role do you think China's strong economic rebound could play in helping to achieve this progress? China will definitely play a very important role. It's、uh, An emerging economy, but it represents already a good percentage of the world's GDP, and also it has created many technologies. It's the the manufacturing hub in the world,、uh, so definitely we have to expect many solutions coming from China, and very importantly as well, 
China has already started playing a very important role in shaping the global narratives as well on entrepreneurship, on technological development, and also on sustainability. The many interesting cases in China, for example, on circular economy. So how can we, for example, reduce the material footprints of companies, of our daily consumption as well? And many references come from China. So we, we have high expectations from what is coming from China, not only building on its legacy and on its current economy, but also on these emerging ideas that are more future-oriented and that are driven by technology, by entrepreneurship, by uh, long-term uh, prosperity. As we discuss entrepreneurship, how would you assess China's capacity for innovation? Could you give us more examples? Because data shows today private sectors in China contribute to more than 70% of high-tech companies, 80% of urban labor employment, and more than 90% of the total number of businesses. Also, another data shows China has surpassed the U.S. in total innovation output and is getting close on a proportional basis. And this is according to a Washington-based think tank for science and technology policy. So what's your overall assessment on the vitality and innovation capacity of Chinese firms? It's fascinating to see how China has developed over the past 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, from these early moments of technological development, China was primarily investing in manufacturing and in uh, activities that had lower added value. And more recently, as you see China developing these technological skills, uh, and also, of course also with very heavy investments in education and infrastructure, you see many companies in China developing more high-tech products as well that are now competing against high-tech technologies from many high-income countries like Germany, like the United States that you just referenced. Mm -hmm. So China is in a very good position to develop and build on these technological capacities that it already has in order to forge ahead in many technological areas uh, that are more future-oriented, such as, for example, green technologies and, and many others uh, that will deeply impact countries around the world. Mm -hmm. And lastly, Professor, what are your expectations for China's economy, especially in the post-pandemic world? China will play a very important role as it has already played for the past 10-15 years, uh, and it's a growing influence as well. Geopolitically, China is joining many of the current discussions and it's uh, engaged with many in many public spaces, shaping international agendas. Uh, and also, of course, in terms of entrepreneurship and innovation, manufacturing, industrial development, China is already a central player, one of the most critical players in the world. And of course, it has a massive economy and a huge population as well. Associate Professor Paulo Savgat from Sats Business School with the University of Oxford talking to my colleague Xu Yawen. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. 
China had 357 unicorn companies as of the end of 2022, the highest number in the country's history. This number is from a report which highlights the growth trends in the country's startup sector. The definition of a unicorn enterprise, for your information, is a company that has been set up for less than a decade and is now valued at more than one billion U.S. dollars. So China's number of unicorns, according to this report, increased by 13% last year compared to 2021. There were 98 newcomers on the list. Most of China's unicorn enterprises, according to the report, are in areas like semiconductor chips, new retail, innovative drugs, digital health, and artificial intelligence. So for more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Andy Mock, senior fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. So China saw the establishment of 98 new unicorn companies last year with valuations of at least one billion U.S. dollar. So who are those unicorns, and what sectors are they concentrated in? Well, so this is a very interesting phenomenon, Zhao Yang. So、um, let me answer this in two parts. So,、uh, what sectors are they in? So, all of the very hot tech sectors, I think, are witnessing an explosion of real advancements as well as increases in valuations. So, semiconductors, obviously,、uh, in、uh, sustainability. So, electric vehicles, everything associated with that.、Um, Many other "quote unquote,"、uh, I think, traditional digital areas, e-commerce, etc.,、um, but we also have to recognize that、uh, being a unicorn is not always a good thing, because all it means is that、uh, the valuation of your company is very, very high. So, I'll give you an example. If I were to if I were to sell you one share in a company that represented one billion. Uh, of the outstanding shares,、um, I could have. I could create a unicorn in 30 seconds.、Uh, a company worth a billion dollars on paper. So,、um, not to say that this metric isn't important, but I would also caution against only looking at these、uh, company valuations.、Mm, and how are they changing? Not just the economic activities, but the whole society. Well, again, I think if we look at the underlying businesses and the technologies that are driving them,、uh, certainly AI is a very、uh, hot sector these days,、uh, especially generative AI、uh, that is allowing、uh, businesses, individuals, governments to create text, pictures, sound, video、uh, is believed to be、uh, very, very transformational. But again, if we look at a company like an OpenAI that、uh, launched ChatGPT,、uh, it's worth a lot of money on paper, but it's not clear that they figured out a way to be profitable,、uh, especially sustainably profitable.、Um, and if they don't,、uh, the valuations they have today will end up being zero in the long run.、Mm -hmm. uh, so again, not to say this is an important, but、uh, it's only a, a very small part of the picture of. How these companies、uh, will develop in the future,、mm, and as you mentioned, most of them are high-tech companies. So, what does this tell us about Chinese companies'、uh, innovation capability? Well, I think certainly、uh, the economics of the 
digital space make it much more likely that you can create very valuable companies very quickly, um, largely because of economic reasons. Uh, the cost of serving another 1,000, 10,000 million customers is closer to zero than it would be for, say, a, an auto manufacturer or a, uh, a traditional consumer goods company. So I think this is one of the main factors driving the very rapid increase in valuation for technology companies. Mm. And as you mentioned, the chip industry has the highest number of unicorns in China, and there were 39 unicorn companies in the chip industry. So how would you explain this, and what are the main reasons for the development of the chip industry here? Well, for semiconductors, I think uh, a lot of what's driving this um, is uh, geopolitical and political in that uh, we all know that uh, the U.S. has been very aggressive in trying to slow down China's development, and semiconductors play a very important role. And it's a bet on the future of China, and I think on Chinese entrepreneurship uh, and Chinese entrepreneurship uh, coupled with government support. So we know that China uh, is taking uh, steps to insulate itself and protect not only itself, but other countries in the world from this kind of weaponization uh, of the supply chain and semiconductors in particular by the United States. And I think the high valuations we're seeing uh, are a vote of confidence that uh, Chinese companies will indeed uh, overcome some of the challenges facing the world today in semiconductors. Mm-hmm. And the number of new unicorn companies in clean energy, new materials, new energy vehicles, power batteries exceeding 50% of the total. So why are opportunities in this area? Well, I think similarly uh, to semiconductors in that uh, there's a recognition that China is leading technologically in this area, especially in areas of batteries today. Um, but also the explosive growth and demand globally as well. And I think this uh, juxtaposition uh, really creates a lot of excitement uh, and investor enthusiasm. And again, um, we need to separate the real technological breakthroughs, the market-based successes from valuations, because valuations can get very high. They can also come crashing down. Uh, again as well. So uh, while I think it's important to follow these company valuations, um, it's also important to also pay attention to the underlying technology and the underlying business performance of these companies as well. Mm. And what are other challenges or risks are there for the unicorn companies considering the global economic uncertainties for this year? Well, again, if we come back to this question of valuation, uh, if there's a change in investor sentiment or there's some uh, global shock, either political or economic, uh, that can uh, deflate uh, investor enthusiasm. And then, of course, then we've seen enormous drop in valuation as well. So these valuations can go up very quickly. They can also go down uh, quickly as well and not be necessarily related to the underlying business performance of the company. Mm. And what environment is needed to encourage and protect those startups and innovations for the private sector, do you think? Well, I think from an investment perspective, um, a certain amount of rationality, uh, because again, the reason companies have high valuations uh, in normal circumstances is because uh, investors or the markets see the commercial value these companies are creating. 
uh, through product innovation, through effective sales, through effective management, where their revenues are greater than their cost, meaning that they're profitable. And ideally, uh, the profit margins are going up over time, as is unit volume. And of course, we've seen enormous successes in China with companies like Tencent, like Alibaba, uh, like ByteDance, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, at one time had very, very high valuations. I put Xiaomi in this category as well. Uh, that had very, very high valuations uh, and went on to justify those valuations uh, in, the, in the future. Mm, and how do you see the potential of 5G and AI in the Chinese market? Uh, well, both very important developments. And, of course, I think uh, 5G in particular, uh, China has demonstrated uh, not only foresight through companies like Huawei that early on played a role in setting the standards for 5G, but government support in rolling it out. Um, and I think similarly, uh, we're seeing AI as well, although a lot of attention recently has been focused on open AI and chat GPT. Uh, China has, I think, important and to some degree hidden strength in this area, including uh, government support. Andy Mock, senior fellow with the Center for China and Globalization, talking to Zhao Yang. You're listening to World Today. Stay tuned. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hen in Beijing. U.S. President Joe Biden is making a new push to sell his economic agenda to average Americans in an effort to win over voters. Biden has used a Wednesday address in the city of Chicago to tout the Bidenomics term. Senior White House officials believe the current combination of a robust labor market and a falling inflation. Creates a stronger place for Biden to make the case for his economic policies as he pursues re-election for 2024. And since late 2021, polls in America have consistently indicated that Americans disapprove of Mr. Biden's handling of the U.S. economy. Joining us now on the line is Mr. Ina Tangen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. Thank you very much for joining us. A pleasure to be here. So,、uh, so White House officials are basically,、uh, for one thing, talking about Biden's sweeping economic legislations, which they say have pumped billions of dollars into infrastructure, clean energy, and sh- and and chips manufacturing, etc. And on, on one, on the other hand, they are also pointing to the fact that more than 13 million jobs have been created. During President Biden's、uh, presidency, but Ina, to the point of、uh, using this term called Bidenomics, how many Americans do you think will really buy this?、Um, very few. <laughs> It, it's not necessarily a very catchy name nor very original, and it's not really going to mean much to people. He passed legislation through the the House and Senate.、Uh, there is going to be a bump. He's talking about、uh, di- digital infrastructure, is also physical infrastructure. Infrastructure, but remember, he only got a portion of what he was seeking. And、uh, quite frankly, it's not clear that at a time when employment、um, is already at a record high, that adding more stimulus is necessarily going to help.、Uh, there might be 13 million jobs added, but if you start looking at the 
Mm. Hundreds of thousands of jobs laid off, very good paying jobs in all the services, in the tech field, etc. Jobs that paid, you know, in excess of 150, 200, up to millions of dollars a year versus the jobs that were created, which were in, you know, uh, movie theaters and healthcare facilities, elderly uh, care issues, um, and some uh, institutions for learning and things like that. So uh, it's just it's just not going to resonate. It's uh, just trying to play this card and see if it if it floats. Mm. So a recent memo written by some of uh, President Biden's uh, top political advisors uh, is arguing that the U.S is finally turning this page on the failed trickle-down uh, you know, theories and policies that have been pursued by the Republicans. And this is probably suggesting to us that this idea that President Biden is very much focused on growing the middle class in America will probably be a one of the top things of his 2024 campaign. But do you think the rhetoric here is consistent with the U.S. economic reality? No, I mean, you don't build the middle class, um, which uh, over the last 45 years has shrank from 62% of the population to now 50%, but you can't rebuild the middle class based on 15 to $20 an hour. Uh, it just it doesn't work. You'd have to work three jobs in order to uh, make a, a decent living and be, consider yourself um, middle class. Um, so... He, you know, he he's saying these things. I think he believes them. Um, he has this kind of nostalgia for the 1970s when his dad was able to work in a, you know, in a factory and yeah. earn enough to put his kids through school and have a fairly nice life. Uh, unfortunately, you know, then as now, the consequences of that weren't clear to him and still aren't. Uh, when you have a factory worker who's behaved that much, unfortunately, that industry is going to leave the U.S. because there are, you know, the competitors are out there. They can do it a lot cheaper. Uh, wage rates are lower in other places. And um, that's what happened to American industry. They basically priced themselves out in terms of uh, labor costs and uh, additional benefits costs and things like that. Mm-hmm. And today you have a situation where, you know, they keep touting that they're uh, onshoring all of this technology. Yeah. Well, you know, TSMC said, look, any chip made in America by TSMC is going to be 30% more than the chip made not in China, but in Taiwan. Um, basically, that would extend also to Japan and South Korea. So you say to yourself, are these going to be competitive factories? Will they be able to compete? And the answer is no. The only ones who will buy them will probably be the military, which means that, in essence, the taxpayers are going to pay 30% more for these chips simply because they were produced in the U.S. So, mm-hmm. you know, these it, it always sounds good uh, yeah. to, you know, kind of come up with something, do anything. But there's no long-term um, solution here, just like with the debt. They kick the debt ceiling issue down the road two years. But there is no solution to it. Yeah. They have not proposed anything that will work. Yeah. So, by the way, this um, Biden's uh, uh, Biden's uh, capability in terms of reaching a deal with Republicans on that ceiling, as well as uh, his administration's um, record in terms of curbing the banking crisis earlier this year, was another talking point by the White House. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're touting this thing, but you know, these are not victories. 
I mean, mm-hmm. what they did is they violated their own policy by basically bailing out uh, very, very large companies, especially in Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley Bank, where they're not supposed to. And they use money from depositors. So in essence, what they're now doing is increasing the amount of deposit insurance that you know, basically ordinary people are going to pay uh, so that they can replenish the fund. Mm. It wasn't intended to do that. Okay. And then in terms of the, you know, the, the debt ceiling and things like that, no, absolutely not. Um, they haven't solved it. Um, if, you, if this was not the United States, uh, people would be looking at the economy as a Ponzi scheme. They're borrowing money to pay the interest on money they already borrowed. And at the same time, they're increasing their borrowing. Since 2009, the uh, U.S. national debt has, in essence, tripled. You know, for wars, for stimulus, etc. It doesn't really matter what. The issue is there's no plan in sight by either party, jointly or separately, to solve the issue. Mm. So in the meantime, Biden administration officials are increasingly comparing the U.S. economic performance under his term to other advanced economies, as well as China, which is seen as a competitor of the United States. That's for sure. Uh, they they are talking about this in order to argue that Biden's policy have placed the United States in a better economic position compared to the rest of the world. Is there really um, a better position, a better economic position on a part of the U.S. and also r- those radical, you know, interest rate hikes conducted by the Fed? Might be arguably helpful to the U.S. economy, especially the inflation at home. But do you think they have been, um, broadly speaking, in the interests of the rest of the world? Oh gosh, no! I mean, the interest rate hikes are are killing the rest of the world, which is trying to cover recover from the pandemic. Um, you know, every time the U.S. raises its rates, all the rest of the countries basically have to raise rates or, you know, their their currency starts to depreciate. Japan has been an anomaly, but, you, you, I mean, uh, I, I don't even know what to say about Japan. <laughs> they're, they're over 250 percent of, uh, of uh, debt to GDP. Um, they still are doing basically easing and things like that. They're defying gravity. The question is, when does it all fall down? Uh, in in terms of you know what the U.S. is doing uh, economically, um, it's it is not doing well. I mean, yeah, I shouldn't say that. It's doing very well compared to Great Britain, which is going to have a contraction of zero point four percent. So if you're, the U.S. grows at one percent, yeah, that's that's much better than Great Britain. But it's it's not better than than China. China's going to grow somewhere around five percent plus. U.S. is going to grow at 1%. You tell me how, you know, do it. And this is, in the old days, they would say things like, oh, well, you know, China uh, is going through this mm. rapid growth, but they're yeah, you know, they're so, not power. And things yeah. Like Thank you very much, Ina. Uh, basically, data tells us everything. But that's Ina Tangen, Senior Fellow with the Taihe Institute. Thank you very much for joining us. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm Dinghan in Beijing. Bye for now.